Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. I would like to welcome back our listeners to part two of an interview with Dr. Pablo Selnick. So Dr. Selnick, welcome to you too. And let's begin where we left off at the end of the first part of the interview. Last time we spoke with you about various topics, including some of your research in the area of stroke rehabilitation, and we'll continue doing so today. Another area of your research involved the ability of whether motor learning can occur following a stroke. Please comment on that type of an investigation. Yes, absolutely. So one of the questions that we always have in the field of neurological rehabilitation is what's the role of motor learning or learning in in recovery? Typically, when we see patients and we describe the problems that they have in, in the, for instance, in the motor domain, they have weakness and paresis on, let's say, in one arm. We, we talk to the patient that they need to go through rehabilitation and they need to relearn the function that they have lost. And we disguise the process of rehabilitation as a relearning process. But then the question is, is it true that recovery and restoration of neurological deficits is carried out by learning or is an independent process that the brain is plastic and, and changes independently of actual learning? So this has been a question in, in the field for quite some time. And we try to tackle this question. Now, to tackle this question is not an easy problem to solve. And the reason is that if you cannot execute, we cannot measure learning. And that creates a significant issue here because patients with stroke that have weakness, they have different degree of weakness and they have different levels of execution abnormalities, which will perhaps impede the ability to, to assess the learning. This is irrespective of the ability to learn new things or not. So we, we performed this study, which again has been complicated the way that we've done it, but the main goal of that design was to control or to ensure that the deficits in execution were not masking or interfering with assessment of learning. So basically, we study a group of stroke patients with different degrees of weakness and, and severity of their deficits, and we assess how they learn a motor skill task. And we also compare this with a group of uh, healthy age match volunteers. And what we observe is that all stroke patients, as well as the volunteers, were able to learn the task. When they're at least 12 months after the stroke, everybody is able to learn the task, regardless of the degree of deficit that they have. However, the, the sad part is that the ability to learn the skill task did not really change the level of neurological function, the level of impairment. In other words, Performing a, a learning a new skill is not really changing how much neurological deficit the person has. So that's kind of the sad news. But the good news, on the other hand, is that regardless of the deficit that the person has, there are, people are able to learn new skills. And this could be very important for stroke survivors because 
we can teach them how to perform new abilities to deal with the problem, so to compensate for the deficit. So that's something that it was uh, very important to discern. And we've done that study in chronic stroke patients, so somebody who has a stroke more than a year ago. The question still remains whether there's an interaction between learning abilities and the plasticity of the brain earlier after the stroke. And that's a study that we are currently conducting here at Johns Hopkins. Some innovations in healthcare can take several years before widespread adoption occurs. In your area of practice, how successful have efforts been to achieve the translation of clinical findings and evidence-based research to the bedside in a timely manner? So that's a fantastic question. And there are many reasons for this loneliness to move things from the research bench to, to the clinical bench. But I'm not going to talk about those reasons. Let me tell you a little bit about my experience. I completed my medical school more than 25 years ago, and I've been working in this neurological rehabilitation area for the last more or less 25 years now. And I have been involved from the very beginning on issues of, for instance, using non-invasive brain stimulation, so stimulating the brain with transcranial magnetic stimulation or transcranial electrical stimulation, to understand how the brain changes, to understand how the brain recovers, but also to improve abilities of the brain. So, for instance, improve the ability to learn new behaviors or perform new skills. All that work for the last 25 years has been done in the research side of the story. Only recently, and I'm talking about the last year or two, we started to use this form of interventions in the, in the clinical side, meaning some patients uh, here at Johns Hopkins are able to come and, and, and get brain stimulation to try to facilitate recovery or restoration of neurological function or an improvement of their abilities to perform activities and so on. But that example is just to tell you that these processes of moving things from the research bench to the clinical bench can take quite a bit of time. And the reason is because now we, we don't care or we are slow is because of issues of safety, uh, one hand, and second, just to ensure that what we are doing makes sense and is going to produce the effects that we want them to do, rather than kind of uh, present smoking mirrors or just, you know, create uh, unreasonable expectations of interventions that we are not truly sure that they're going to be helpful. A greater focus is being placed today on patient-reported outcomes, as evidenced by the creation of the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, which occurred with the passage of the Affordable Care Act and its enactment. How do you view the importance of patient involvement in medical decision-making and in any related aspects of their care? I think this is absolutely critical, and this is a very important change and switch in the way that the health system has been set up and at least in academic institutions we, we are doing the work. Patient engagement is a concept from the last maybe five years or so. The ACA has been critical in putting this in the forefront. A lot of research grants and subsidies do not involve patient engagement, but other sources of funding for instance, from the Department of Defense, has patient engagement in the review process of the research. So the patient or advocates are uh, sitting in those review panels 
determining whether the science that is proposed to be uh, done makes sense for the, from the patient perspective. So engaging the patient in the decision-making is, is uh, critical. And the, the whole idea of the PCORI that you mentioned earlier is to have uh, for patient reported outcomes is critically important for shifting or designing the most appropriate delivery of care. So that is a, a significant innovation that came with ACA. And it has also shifted the ability to do some type of research questions in much more clinical settings that is going to really change the way we practice medicine. Medicine is, the way we practice is an accumulation of uh, science and tested research, but there is a lot of habits and there is a lot of old myths that you cannot test every single one of those elements with the appropriate research. So an intermediate step to understand whether those are the most uh, efficient ways of treat patients is to do this type of work uh, using this uh, PCORI line of work where you have the patient-reported outcomes. An important aspect of healthcare would seem to be a patient's resilience and positive willingness to want to participate actively in all aspects of rehabilitation aimed at improving the quality of life. From your standpoint, to what extent is that patient perspective taken into account in the research that's being conducted? Well, it depends on the research that has been conducted. So when we do research, for instance, in my lab, I, I invite stroke survivors to come and participate as volunteers in the work. I'm not assessing resilience and so on, but perhaps you can imagine that by by default, those the people who are coming to my lab are people who are able to come, but also are interested and motivated. They want to participate in research. And I'm not directly testing the, the resiliency in, the, in that case, but uh, I am engaging a group of people who most likely are very resilient. Now, there is other type of research that assess some of these personality traits and, and which part of that includes resiliency and their ability to recover and return to be a functional member of society and reintegration of the community and the impact of mood disorders and so on. So I think it's, it's a very important element, but not all research addresses these, these issues. Now, we do know that resiliency is very important for the rehabilitation process. Like I said earlier, maybe in the last podcast session, having a stroke is a very traumatic event for the person and for the families and friends. So having a significant level of resiliency will be critical to engage a person to work together with a rehabilitation team to improve the condition and, and function. The high cost of healthcare today, its availability, and transportation problems are among the factors that contribute to the difficulty of obtaining in-clinic rehabilitation services for many patients. What role do you see in-home telehealth therapy programs playing in addressing this kind of situation? Yeah, this is a very interesting development of the recent years, the concept of telerehabilitation I think that it's going to really facilitate a lot of the process, of, uh, particularly for access. So like you mentioned, a lot of patients, uh, either they cannot go because they don't have the ability or the transportation methods, or they have deficits and depend on somebody else uh, to bring them to a, a medical setting to do the rehabilitation. So the, the utilization of tele-rehabilitation interventions may uh, facilitate that access to do exercises and so on. Uh, we think that then there's a significant role I think is going to be playing on this. So when patients are discharged from the, re the hospital or uh, they come to the ambulatory clinic to do rehabilitation exercises, they do that typically 
two or three times a week. In high-intensity training programs uh, like we have here, maybe they come four or five times a week. But even if they come, they do that for one or two hours or three hours a day, and that's it. The day is much longer than that. Um, perhaps there is a great potential to do more exercises or more training, and it will be convenient to do that at home in a partially supervised manner by these tele-rehabilitation uh, approaches. So I think that we are going to be seeing more and more of these tele-rehabilitation interventions developed and providing access to patients to do exercises uh, at the distance. Do you see any ways in which rehabilitation services could benefit from leveraging existing and emerging kinds of social media platforms and perhaps using other modalities such as apps, wearable devices, and even virtual reality technology? Yes, absolutely. There is a lot of excitement in the rehabilitation field in the, with the concept of taking advantage of the technology development. So I think social media will be a significant role in terms of education and, and engagement uh, forming communities of people who can uh, learn peer-to-peer about problems or how to solve problems. But then there's other aspects of the technology development that you mentioned, like the apps or virtual reality or augmented reality. That is uh, something that people have been exploring. So, uh, for instance, uh, the idea of using apps to train some cognitive domain or perform some uh, basic motor exercises will be exciting. The idea of using augmented reality to engage the patient, basically the, the, the concept is the same. We are training the people to return the neurological function or improve their level of activity or educate the person to re-engage in community and, and uh, as a functional member of society. How we do that is what, what is changing with technology development. And But I, I don't want to minimize uh, this issue of how we do that, because what happens is technology is engaging and could be uh, fun. It may be, it's a bit boring perhaps to go to the gym and repeat 20 times the same movement with the arm, picking up a, a little cone in the, on, on a table perhaps, if you had to do that. Uh, two times a day for five days a week, it may be becoming a little boring. But if you can uh, at least the same type of movements because you're playing a game and you're challenged to play the game better and so on, without realizing that you're playing the game, now you're doing the same type of motoric exercises and so on. So that's a concept that perhaps technology can bring us. And that has been, it's been tested now and we are continuing to, to work on these areas of trying to produce bigger motivation, more engagement from the patient to do these uh, rehabilitation exercises. Developments in assistive technologies and in genomics have become prominent aspects of healthcare today. How do you see developments in these areas influencing rehabilitation? Well, this is yet another interesting aspect of rehabilitation. The, The assistive technologies can help patients compensate or adapt to the deficit that they have. And there are many, many forms of assistive devices. For instance, the simple one is a cane. You People have decreased balance. You should just use a cane to be able to walk and improve your balance. That's the form of an assistive device. But then you can talk about more sophisticated assistive devices like prosthetics and thoris, or you can talk about these exoskeletons that are uh, patient wears to be able to walk, for instance. So all those accomplish the same thing, which is the compensation for the deficit that the person have. But the goal of that compensation is to allow the person to be able to engage in an activity and in the community and, again, be an active member of society. So I think that 
those technological developments are very important for those people who uh, unfortunately do not have a full or a significant restoration of the neurological deficit. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, every week they have something called Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. And the item for May 25th of 2018 mentioned that despite long-standing national guidelines recommending stroke rehab, it remains underutilized. And then it lists the kinds of individuals who tend not to be involved. How do you see that situation improving? Well, I think that is in part is uh, related to education. This is education not by the patients themselves or the family member, but also by the providers, by the health system itself. A lot of people who have strokes, especially when they are younger folks and so on, go through the hospital rapidly and are discharged and sent home, and they are not even offered or informed that they should continue doing outpatient rehabilitation. So there is a significant element of education and information that is lacking in that space. And for instance, what you mentioned earlier, the idea of using social media for rehabilitation, this is an aspect that will be very important to cover. Another reason that is important to consider that patients do not follow with outpatient rehabilitation is the issue of health insurance. So rehabilitation is not uh, cheap, it's, it's expensive and not everyone has health insurance. So a lot of people feel that uh, if you do not have health insurance, you just take care of the emergency, you are not dead, you survive whatever uh, major element, but there is not much thought about that you continue rehabilitation because it is expensive. And other people have health insurances, but these health insurances do not make rehabilitation very prominent. And that's because Typically, consumers uh, are not really paying attention to rehabilitation. They are paying attention to major elements like surgeries, uh, attention to the emergency department, uh, and so on. But they're not thinking much of rehabilitation. And when they think about rehab, they think about maybe a neck pain, a a bruise, or uh, some kind of fracture, or ankle sprain, and so on. So a lot of times, those health insurances uh, describe that people can receive rehabilitation for uh, 15 sessions or 30 sessions per year. And that may be okay if you have neck pain, back pain, and ankle sprain. But 30 sessions of rehabilitation to work with somebody who has had a stroke is uh, is almost nothing. It's like a joke. So people will find that after having a significant trauma that requires significant rehabilitation, 30 sessions will not do. And that also limits the access of patients to get the very much needed rehabilitation interventions. Dr. Selnick, I'm going to conclude part two of this interview by thanking you for sharing your valuable insights with our listeners about several important topics pertaining to the stroke problem. It has been both an honor and a pleasure to have this discussion with you today, and I wish you continued success in all your endeavors. Again, thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much. It has been a tremendous pleasure for me as well. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.